because if the purpose of creating art is to then spurn people to a particular kind of political action, then you're not doing what beauty is really created to do, which is to open us up to see more clearly the, the reality that we live in. Welcome to Act in Line, a podcast from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. In this episode, Sarah Negri, research project coordinator at the Acton Institute, sits down with Margarita Mooney Clayton, professor of practical theology at Princeton Theological Seminary and founder and executive director of Scala Foundation to talk about her most recent book, The Wounds of Beauty, Seven Dialogues on Art and Education. They discuss beauty as a way of encountering and participating in the splendor of transcendental being through embodied sensory experiences, point out the dangers of viewing art merely as self-expression or art with an agenda, and draw out beauty's connection to human freedom, creativity, and flourishing. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash podcast. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Welcome to Act in Line. I'm Sarah Negri, Research Project Coordinator at the Acton Institute. Today I am joined by Dr. Margarita Mooney Clayton, Professor of Practical Theology at Princeton Theological Seminary and Founder and Executive Director of Scala Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to restoring meaning and purpose to culture through liberal arts education, beauty, and religion. Margarita has written and spoken on these topics in a wide variety of scholarly and popular arenas and is the author and co-author of several books. Her popular work can be read in publications such as Comment, Real Clear Policy, Scientific American, First Things, Public Discourse, and Church Life Journal. She is also both an alumni and former faculty member of Acton University. Margarita received her BA in Psychology from Yale University and her MA and PhD in Sociology from Princeton University. She has also been on the faculty at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, Yale University, Princeton University, and Pepperdine University, and is a passionate keynote speaker on higher education, culture, and Christianity at venues including Yale University, Harvard Law School, Columbia University, Duke University, Pepperdine University, and the Catholic University of America. Today we'll be discussing Margarita's most recent book, published by Clooney Media earlier this year, entitled The Wounds of Beauty, Seven Dialogues on Art and Education, which grew out of her decades of experience as a teacher and scholar. Margarita, welcome to Act in Line, and thank you for being with us today. You're welcome. Great to be here. So I really enjoyed the setup of your book. It's laid out in seven different interviews you had with different intellectuals and culture creators on different elements of beauty. Can we start with the basics? I'd love to hear you explain what it means to say that beauty is one of the transcendentals or convertible with unity, truth, and goodness. Well, it took me a long time to reach that understanding as beauty as a transcendental, because as you mentioned, I studied psychology and sociology in school, and beauty was hardly ever talked about. And if it ever came up, it was so mysterious as to be ineffable and indescribable or so real that it becomes oppressive because beauty is just a preference or a taste that we use to extend our domination over other people. When I began to really rethink that understanding of beauty as ineffable and undescribable or a form of domination was when I really began to look at philosophy of the human person and try to think through what is a good life? What is a happy life? And the people I talked to, it, whether they're my students or people I interviewed in my research, they wanted to experience joy. And they distinguished 
that joy from mere sensory pleasure. And so it was from there that I began to look really at Catholic philosophy and theology to try to understand this distinction. And what I came upon, which I found really exciting, was this idea that experiences of beauty are a way in which we, through a sensory experience, whether that's a beautiful sunset, a beautiful piece of art, a concert, a great liturgy, we perceive and participate in the splendor of being in the created world that God has given us. Now, that's a lot of words, but let me let me simplify it a little bit. What it means to say beauty is a transcendental is that embodied sensory experiences of beauty help us participate in the goodness of God's creation. And that definition sounded like something I was willing to live my life for rather than let me just figure out how to get like the best looking and best tasting cookies to fill my belly tonight, right? Or let me figure out how to beat somebody with like the most expensive opera tickets I can get and show that I'm better than them. Well, I like cookies and I like opera, but to think about the things I find pleasurable doing them in a way that helps me participate in the splendor of God's creation was so much more fulfilling. One of my favorite quotes from the book is from your dialogue with George Harn, where he says, if the prophets and the religious leaders are not dealing with metaphysics, the artists will. And I think this really relates to what you were saying about beauty being connected with an encounter with the splendor of being. Can you talk a little bit more about how beauty relates to the truth of being and the realm of the transcendent, especially the way that it has its own intrinsic value in the way that we experience something beautiful, we can encounter it in itself, but it also leads us into our participation with something beyond itself. Sarah, that's a great question. You know, all of these definitions that we're starting with on kind of beauty as the splendor of being, et cetera. I usually start this conversation with students or people I'm talking to who may not have read all of this philosophy or theology. And I just ask them to describe for me the last time they felt joy. Well, first of all, it's sad that a lot of people can't remember the last time they experienced joy, which is telling in and of itself. But second, most of the time, people will refer to the examples that I just gave you, like a beautiful sunset in nature, um, a really moving concert, right? But they're always talking about kind of an event in the material world or a thing in the material world that they're somehow engaging with in a way that's revealing the splendor of the form. So I think what George Harn was referring to in our dialogue was that in many ways um, where people are being led in culture is often coming from the realm of artists or culture creators who, for the most part, being trained in the arts today, they're not talking about beauty as a transcendental or beauty as a participation in the beauty, in the in the splendor or form of creation. So what people are being fed from culture is often sensory and kind of moves their senses, but in a way that excites the senses, but doesn't create what George Horn describes so beautifully as resonance, right? A way in which your sensory reaction feels that it's reaching a kind of tension that's a conclusion, but it's really also an opening up to a deeper desire for that good, right? So just think of this, like for most people, and look, I struggle with this, I was going on a retreat recently. I wrote about this on my blog and I was afraid I wasn't going to have good food at the convent. So I stuffed myself with five guys, burgers and fries on the way. And you know what? It was really good going down, but it was not good when I wanted to open up my spirit. Right? So there's ways in which simply by feeding our senses, we're just responding to an impulse, but we're not using our bodies or using the material world in a way that is fulfilling, but fulfilling because it does provide pleasure, but really prepares us to receive even deeper experiences by opening us up 
filling us in a way that's opening us up. And that's what George Harn talks about resonance, right? Um, so what often happens too, because I've done a lot of interviews with people, what they find pleasurable at one moment might actually feel really bad the next day. I mean, that's the truth for most drugs, right? I've interviewed people who've had long-standing struggles with drugs. They get sucked into something, but it becomes enslaving. Um, so I think what's happening now, and part of the reason I teach this, a lot of people are worried about um, you know, the impact of social media and the kinds of images people are seeing, the kinds of messages people are receiving. Um, and so I think, and we can get more into this, but this whole concept of beauty as helping us participate in something that's beyond us breaks the self-centeredness of so much of popular culture. Right? I think it really relates as well to the way that our attention is just bombarded by images and by ways to satisfy different desires um, in a way that's not necessarily in accord with our nature. So what I what I got from reading your book is there's this return to an idea of the nature of the human person and how we're, we're ordered towards an encounter with truth. We're ordered towards the world in a certain way. And beauty and an encounter with the beautiful is a way to relate to that in a way that we were made for. Um, whereas just pleasure-seeking... Is can be satisfying to those desires, but it's not always in accord with our nature, and so then it leaves us feeling empty. So Encounter with the Beautiful is there's an ontological connection there with something that actually was made for who we are and how we were made, and there's a connection that we make to that that being that's beyond. Absolutely. And I was teaching about this this week using my book and using some of the sources in my book, right? So my book, as you described, is a series of dialogues about beauty with um, Peter Brown, an historian of classical Christianity, uh, also with people who themselves are culture creators. And then the book is then a kind of dialogical engagement with big questions around beauty. And it includes the citations for further reading. So when I was teaching my dialogues, for example, with Dana Joya, we referenced Jack Maritan's book, Creative Intuition and Art and Poetry. So that's what I was teaching this week. I was teaching Maritan. And what Maritan, I think, nails is precisely what you just said, that um, the importance of upholding the transcendental properties of beauty helps us connect what we create in the world to a participation in something outside of us. And Maritan brilliantly contrasts that with a view of our unconscious self as nothing more than a Freudian subconscious, where we're being driven by instincts, desires, passions, blood, but there's no ordering principle. And all we are then is just kind of a, uh, all our sensations are is just one after another fragmented response to some kind of stimuli. And it may feel really real because it's in the gut, it's in the emotion. It's in the passions, but it's not connected to anything outside of us. What's the end game? If that's all there is to our unconscious, that's it. Well, then what you end up with is a view of the human person where to be free, and I say that in quotation marks, to be free is to follow every single impulse all the time. You know, release your inhibitions, you know, reject tradition. There's no authority to any of this. Just feel it, live it, do it. And Maritan says, look, of course the human being has passions and instincts and desires, but he calls, he calls it, he says that there's like a pre-conscious, like a spiritual pre-conscious, where before all of our passions and desires are fragmented and going in all different directions, there's a place where we as human beings can experience the unity of mind, body, and soul. And so what he describes is that the process, what he calls that creative intuition, there's a place inside of ourselves where we can retreat and get out of this machine of just being, you know, stimulated left and right. And he, he refers to this virtue of the practical intellect, that we have a reason that's rooted in the depths of our being, which allows us to guide our passions and our instincts, to 
to create things in the world that are participating in this divine order. And then when we create them, we reflect back on them and improve them according to the virtues of the practical intellect, because our instincts or creativity is not meant to be a kind of impulse going in all different directions. Our, our impulses, our passions, our desires are meant to be ordered to participate in the co-creation, the extension of God's divine redemption in this world. I find that much more inspiring than just thinking of us as kind of laboratory rats that are being poked left and right by an impulse. And if we just let go of all inhibitions and respond to all those impulses, we're going to feel free. No, we usually don't. We feel empty and we feel a void. And that's what got me into this because I think that the, the emptiness and the void of the Freudian subconscious makes people desire some kind of message that's telling them that there's something bigger than themselves. And what that has tended to be recently for a lot of young people is a kind of political message that, hey, your life does matter. Hey, your feelings matter. But they matter because you're going to contribute to this kind of revolutionary reordering of history and time. And again, that revolutionary reordering of history and time, apart from any sense of the universal destiny of the human person that is beyond time, can create a lot of fervor and even a lot of cooperation amongst people to further these political or historical ends. But then it then becomes a kind of closed system. History is closed. It's closed off from divine intervention. Your interior life is powerful, but it's closed off from the divine. And then we end up creating, I think, a kind of cage that we live in and we just it just descends into conflict and fighting because there's no other, there's nothing outside of the political anymore in that view. Yeah, I really liked what you said about especially authority and tradition, because I do think that comes into play here, um, because the political can sort of substitute for that in some regard. But if you don't have the divine, then it doesn't have sort of that the guidance that it needs to stay within the realm of the nature of the human person. Can you talk about that interplay between, especially in the arts and in the realm of beauty, the interplay between tradition and innovation? I've seen that in architecture. I actually took a, I took a class this summer, um, just audited a free class about liturgy, beauty, and glory. And they were talking about architecture and the way that the history of church architecture has been is it's actually been very intertwined with the doctrinal tradition. And if you want to stay within the doctrinal tradition, then you actually have to sort of ascribe to the architectural tradition because they're very closely related. And yet still within that, if you stay within that tradition, you can have a lot of space for creativity and innovation to make new advances within the realm of the tradition. And I thought that was just such a beautiful representation of probably all of the arts kind of have that similar structure. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. You know, as you said, for many people, innovation is thought of as somehow breaking with tradition. But in my book, in the first chapter of my book with the historian Peter Brown, who writes on Christianity and late antiquity, that would have really been unthinkable um, because art and architecture was thought to be based in mathematical principles that are universal, right? So I had never encountered that idea until I started working on beauty as a transcendental and talking to people like Peter Brown or also to David Clayton, who's in my book, who has a background in mathematics and physics. But if you talk to people who've studied natural sciences, they know that Natural science is premised on the basis of order. And what we see in the world is reflective of a kind of mathematical order to the universe. And that, that in and of itself is a beautiful idea. But what I didn't know was that classical architecture took from our sensory experience of musical tones, right? We all hear certain music in certain scales and translated those mathematical properties into the properties of how to build things. So that the harmony in music is the same harmony that we perceive in a building that has a certain kind of proportion. 
And so what I always tell people who think, oh, no, you know, that kind of tradition and architecture, that's just what pleases you, you know. But look, most people, unless they've been to art school and then it's been trained out of them, walk onto the campus of Princeton University and they go for the same spots to take their photographs. It's the classical architecture with the columns or the arches. And the reason for that is that those architectural features actually uh, frame space and frame the human being in space that we have so that we have clarity of what's in the picture and there's a wholeness. You might see the pieces, you see the face of the person and you see the columns, but those are then ordered in, in space because of the, because of the architecture. So again, what that, what I would contrast that with is kind of blob looking buildings, which have been put up more recently, where if you look at them, all the windows are the same. There's no proportion. There's no harmony. It's just kind of a, a bland repetitiveness. Then another contrast to that, okay, we don't want bland repetitiveness. We want innovation, you know, but then the innovation ends up being like a fluorescent pink statue that is so bold that it's kind of like you look at it, but you also want to turn away from it. It's kind of like Las Vegas. You know, you sort of can't help but look at it, but it's also hurting you to look at it. And it's a really weird feeling. You don't experience resonance with that. The early church drew on the classical uh, tradition of architecture and figures like Vitruvius. And as, as Peter Brown said, in the classical world from Plato, Aristotle, right, mathematics was treated as a way to get into the mind of God as the supreme craftsman, right? And so innovation was thought of as was entering into this kind of retracing of God's design for the material world. So Peter Brown blows out of the water a lot of these ideas that creativity was somehow breaking with tradition and unleashing the genius of the artist. No, 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 no. In the classical world and early Christianity, the genius was not breaking with tradition. The genius was someone who understood tradition and created it in the present time. So, of course, in that act of creation, there's going to be the individual artist or something personal of that time. But, and also as Aiden Hart says, and he's going to be someone I'm going to speak to um, in an online conversation coming up. He's also one of the keynote speakers at Scala's conference in April, 2023. He actually says that creativity only exists when it's understood as an extension of a tradition into a particular place and time. You do not reject the universals. You do not reject mathematics. You do not reject what has come before. You extend it. That's what creativity is. Yeah, I love that. There's this idea that art is about self-expression and just sort of letting loose whatever's on the inside and it doesn't take into account what you're trying to reveal about the world or contemplate about the world, which is so much a part of the tradition. Look, Sarah, what you exactly said is exactly right. And what I said to my students earlier this week, if you read someone like Jacques Maritain, Creative Intuition, Art and Poetry, where he's, he's critiquing surrealism, the artistic movement called surrealism, I said, whether you know it or not, just like when you look at Instagram or look at social media, you're looking at something that's been created to try to shape your response in a particular way. It is the same thing with artistic movements. Whether they all articulate it or not, artistic movements, aesthetic movements are grounded on a particular understanding of the human person and the human good. And if you don't know what those principles are, you could be misled. Surrealism, which Jacques Maritain critiques in Creative Intuition and Art and Poetry, is the idea that what reality ultimately is, is this kind of Freudian place of dreams and fantasies and impulses with no order, right? So yeah, there are objects in surrealist art, but they're not quite what you ever see. I mean, it looks like a twisted dream. And so it's an abstraction, but not an abstraction that points us to a fullness beyond the material world, which is what traditional classical Christian iconography would do. But it's an abstraction that is trying to express deep down inside of you, the chaos 
of your dreams. That's what's real. So art as self-expression really ends with disorder, chaos, and I think nihilistic social anarchy. Yeah, it sounds like it's still expressing a particular metaphysic, even though it's trying to get away from it. There's another trend in art I would like to talk about, and it was uh, something that I was thinking about. I went to an exhibit at John Ball Zoo recently in Grand Rapids, and there were a bunch of sculptures of um, sea creatures, but they were all made out of recycled plastics and like beach trash that had been refurbished to make these sculptures. And they were pretty neat. They were impressive. They were big. They were colorful. But there was something in me that it was hard for me to say that was beautiful. And I, I've seen this trend kind of over and over where there's this art with an agenda. And there's a message that's trying to be conveyed through the medium, whatever's being used. And it's often political. It's often environmental. Whatever it is, it's more about the message than about the piece of art. Can you talk about whether you agree with this idea of art with an agenda um, is beautiful or not, and kind of what you see in that. Absolutely. In my chapter in this book with James Matthew Wilson, the poet, we discussed this, as well as with Dana Joya, who was the head of the National Endowment of the Arts. And they're both, they're both proponents of beauty as part of the public, right? As part of the common good, but not because beauty is directly communicating a political message. But because beauty is doing all the things we've talked about, revealing the form and the splendor of being, that's what makes beauty part of the common good. The move to make art exhibits or art that is expressly political, as you described, uh, environmental justice or um, social justice, look, those might be really good values to have, and they might be really good um, policy proposals. This isn't the place necessarily to debate the merits of those proposals. But what I think we need to worry about is when the creativity of the artist gets removed from the fundamental purpose of creating forms that express the goodness of being. And when you try to kind of put a political message on that, you're directing the end of beauty towards something historical. And you, you lose the transcendental really quickly because if the purpose of creating art is to then spurn people to a particular kind of political action, then you're not doing what beauty is really created to do, which is to open us up to see more clearly the, the reality that we live in. So what ends up happening, ironically, is that by trying to direct beauty to a political end, you end up closing people's minds and closing people's imaginations. And it becomes a form of manipulation right? It's not helping people discover what Maritain calls the spiritual preconscious, the place of wholeness, the place of integrity. It's directing via a kind of emotional response, directing that to a political action. And so you can easily incite people to action and frankly, even to group action. But what you're not doing is transforming them to see more clearly the whole picture, right? So what I think Dana Joya talks about, what James Matthew Wilson, you know, David Clayton, others in my book, is that as artists, they want to resist being told that their creativity has to be directed to getting people to act in a certain way, because that's violating the freedom of the other person. Now, if that happens because that person has a calling to work in environmental justice or social justice or, you know, what have you, that's a great thing. But look, Sarah, to think of some of the absurdities that could come from this, um, from this idea that art has to be political. This can also happen, let's say, in um, religious art, right? So should religious art depict the saints and martyrs of the early centuries or depict people who have died unfairly in political battle in the 20th century. 
you know, well, if the only thing that makes somebody worthy of remembering was that they died for politics, not that they died because they had faith and were, you know, promoting a vision of the good, but they were promoting a political message, then we end up making our understanding of eternal life the same as what's happening here politically. And we're essentially making redemption political, not transcendental. So that's what concerns me about the beauty that you're describing is that it's forgetting that the purpose of beauty is to show us that we participate in something beyond us. And it's actually telling us, hey, look, you get out there and you control the world around you. And it's putting the human person at the center. And that's not what beauty is supposed to be doing. Hmm, I like that a lot. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that idea of personal freedom? There was one quote in your book I really liked. It said, beauty is a forgotten element of personal freedom and ordered freedom. And that's something we definitely care a lot about at Acton. You've touched on a little bit how our disordered passions can lead us to pursue pleasure. And that's actually more enslaving than freeing. Um, Can you just elaborate on that a little more on how beauty is an important element of freedom, both on the individual level and also as a society? Look. What drew me to attend Acton as a graduate student in sociology and what's brought me back so many times is precisely the understanding of freedom that you helped me to see. I thought freedom meant autonomy. I thought freedom meant no restrictions on what I can choose, that whatever my preferences are, I get to have it. And I thought that anything that restricted my autonomy had to be bad, right? That's an exterior imposition. The problem is, if you lead a life of pursuing autonomy and every desire, you don't really end up feeling satisfied, as I've already described. And so to realize that sort of my desire for self-direction had to be directed towards some kind of proper end, some sort of fittingness of who I am as a human being, was actually freeing because now I had a direction. I had a purpose beyond self-fulfillment. So what I think that I share so much with Acton, right, is that this view of the human person as created for good, as capable of doing great things, but in need of redemption. So the understanding of human freedom that I believe Acton promotes, and I do as well, is a classical understanding of the, of the human person as created for good, but fallen in sin, right? And so we have creative capacities, we have great desires, but they have to be ordered. And so what I, the reason I think people don't like that understanding of freedom is that the freedom of the freedom that I believe in does require acknowledging human dependence on our creator. Now, again, in most places and times, other than, you know, maybe the last 200 years in the West, this was thought of as obvious, right? We did not create ourselves. We are responsible to our creator, whatever you want to name that. But this idea that the self has the seat of freedom within it with no bounds and Restrictions, plenty of philosophers have traced to basically 20th or you know 18th century Western philosophy. Um, and I think we've actually reached a point where a lot of people just don't want to hear that anymore. I mean, again, when I talk with young people, they've been told that's all they've ever been told is that freedom is, you know, getting whatever they want, right? And that's not very fulfilling. They want someone to propose a good to them, they want someone to give them a purpose. Again. Um, So the reason that I think that freedom and creativity go together is that people want to find their personal vocation. They want to guide that towards something that's participating in the common good. So freedom cannot be divorced from dependence, right? Freedom cannot be separated from responsibility and freedom has to contribute to the common good. Otherwise, it's actually degrading, not ennobling. Yeah, and creativity is a big part of that. Can you also touch a little bit on how art responds to the demands of the marketplace and kind of how it fits into the economic framework? I know it's sometimes seen as a less practical option. And people say, if you're going to become an artist, you're going to starve. So how can you um, sort of fit that essential element of beauty that we all need in our lives into a framework that 
acknowledges our economic reality without sort of becoming enslaved to it. Because you do want to preserve that transcendent element where it's not just about an end that art or beauty serves. It's about appreciating it for itself. Yet how does that fit into our economic world? In times when great arts have flourished, we had much more of a culture of a system of patrons of the arts or people who would commission great art. Um, Because this culture of understanding beauty permeated and people understood that there were, that it's part of who we are as human beings to desire these experiences of the splendor of being. So I think what a lot of artists people who want to be artists or musicians in this country face is just a lack of patrons and a lack of commissions. A lot of people are making money, I will say, in graphic design, in tattoos, which, oh, tattoos, what does that have to do with Well, tattoos are figurative. They typically are kind of like they're depicting something. They're not abstract usually, right? So people are making, people are paying for images, but they're paying for them through, you know, inscribing things on your body and tattoos or through social media. So the question really, and I've talked with people who work with patrons of nonprofits or philanthropy, there's a lack of good philanthropy in the arts. And if you're listening to this podcast and you fit into that category, I would love to talk to you because there are artists out there right now that if we had a school for sacred music or if we had a school for sacred art, they would be spreading this. But what ends up happening when I talk to great artists and musicians who have this view of beauty as a transcendental, they're very isolated in their formal training programs. And they don't even know where to go to get the commissions to do the kind of artistic work that they want to do. Now, there are there are many um, exceptions to this. I think of Paul Jernberg's great music and the Magnificat Institute for Sacred Music, but he now has a patron. Um, he created good work and people noticed and they came forward. They took a long time. You know, David Clayton was working on this vision for, for decades, and then he was invited to found Pontifex, which is a program that trains people in a master's of sacred arts. And now people with degrees from there are going and teaching in other places. So look, there are exceptions to this, but artists who believe in beauty as a transcendental are often flat out ridiculed in art schools. Artists who think that beauty is supposed to help us participate in the divine creator God are are made fun of. So that's part of the reason that Scala exists. You know, Scala is not yet a great commissioner or a patron of the arts. We don't have those kinds of resources. I wish we did. But what Scala is trying to provide is a community where artists, culture creators, can come together at our annual conference, can meet each other in our online programs and find out that there are other artists who share this vision and that there are at least some people who are willing to be patrons of this work. Um, And I believe that when that happens, the creativity of those artists is going to flourish in their local community, whether that be, you know, rural Maine, whether that be, you know, in a big city like Houston Um, But there are also schools, and I'm sure you know this at Acton, there are classical liberal arts schools that have tried to reinvigorate this tradition of beauty, truth, and goodness in K-12 education. And listen, that movement is taking off. Now, I have yet to meet parents who self-consciously say, I want my kid to have more beauty. Most parents don't say that. Most parents are attracted to classical liberal arts because they believe it's enshrining the values and the traditions that have made this country great. But the teachers and the founders of those schools know that experiencing beauty is fundamental for all the reasons that we have talked about. And there's a great school right in Grand Rapids, St. Stephen's Catholic School, where the principal, Elizabeth Black, she's a graduate of Christendom and the Liturgical Institute, I believe, at Mundelein Seminary, and she has a way of beauty program that's a complement to the classical education. What do the children do? They make embroidery that helps with the church vestments. They they make um, decorations for the church for particular feasts in the calendar. Oh, and the parents' favorite is the kids make food appropriate to times of the year in the church calendar, and they bring home these recipes and these great meals. 
So what she's doing, I'd say in some ways is very Benedictine, right? In my book, I also talk with a woman called Sister Noella Marcelino, AKA the cheese nun. And the way of beauty in the Benedictine tradition is about working with the fruits of the earth, seeing in the processes of death of fungi that make great cheese, the possibility of rebirth into something better and connecting our, our creativity in the material world to the symbolic dimension and how the beauty, including the death and rebirth, and rebirth we see in the material world, pointing us to something outside of us. And listen, kids, especially in K-8, where their creativity hasn't been beaten out of them yet, um, they respond to this. They jump right in. Boys and girls, they jump in because they like the hands-on. And when it's directed to something that's communal, to something that's transcendent, it's really exciting and they want more of it. So in summary of my long intervention there, my hope is both that there's top down and bottom up change. What's the top down? We have got to have philanthropy and patrons of the arts in this country. But we also need parents, educators, and clergy, Protestant, Catholic, any faith tradition who understand that beauty communicates the truth of the faith and that it is essential, essential for parents and schools and religious leaders to resist the technological society that tells us that the human value is nothing other than the value of our productive work. This is not the message of people of faith. Our human dignity is a gift of God and our capacities for creativity are intended to be a gift, an offering. They are not our own. What we create in this world with our freedom does not belong to us. It belongs to God and his divine plan. And if we stray from that, I fear that we shall end up with our technological, scientific creativity going towards creating some kind of a mechanistic robot vision of a human where we do not have this spiritual preconscious and we're creating machines. This is not who we are as human beings. We are a unity of mind and body and soul. And so much coming out of artificial intelligence, I think, fundamentally misunderstands the human person and is trying to use science and technology to perfect certain of our capacities and cannot open us up to the fullness of being human. And we end up degrading the weak, the disabled, the elderly, the young, and the vulnerable because their dependence cannot be ignored. Yeah, I, I really like that, that vision you articulated of top down and bottom up, and especially that, that kind of warning about what could happen when we ignore beauty, when we stop seeing it as practical or in, integrating it into our lives. We lose, not only do we lose that enrichment of our lives, of being in contact with the transcendental, but we also get on a very dangerous path and I, I actually, I realized this last week, I think, maybe the week before. Um, yeah, it was the day after the election. And in Michigan, they passed the Proposal 3, the amendment to the Constitution that enshrined the reproductive rights into the Michigan Constitution. It's a very dangerous proposition. And I just remember that day, the day after, it was November 9th, and I went to Mass. And the feast day for the calendar was the Feast of St. John Lateran, the church in Rome. And it's interesting that we have a feast day for a, a building in the church calendar. There's several of them. But as I was pondering that, I, I felt like there was this idea that when you honor intrinsic value, when you honor beauty and what it points to, it's harder to lose track of the intrinsic value of the human person. And if we stop valuing the beautiful churches and the beautiful buildings and all the artwork in our society that points us to God— it's much easier to stop valuing the other human beings around us. And that's exactly what happened with the passing of Proposal 3. 
And so those things are very connected in ways that we don't always see. Absolutely. Look, one of the biggest turning points in my life, which I shared in brief at Acton's Banquet a few years ago, was the first time I traveled to Cuba, where my mother is from. It was 1994. And first of all, on the surface, what you see is the contrast between the beautiful classical Cuban, very distinctly Cuban, but also classical architecture of the Grand Ballet and the Grand Opera, which was brought, those ideas were brought from Europe, but incarnated, enculturated into Cuba. Put that next to the Soviet style blocks of, you know, public housing blocks that are all identical in form, you can get lost in them. And then talking to people who had not been able to flee Cuba as my mother had and had grown up in this communist system. And I remember going with a friend to teach on the Ten Commandments up, up in the mountains in Cuba, outside of Santiago de Cuba. And when we talked about the command, thou shall not kill, we asked people to give examples of ways that people do this, other than just murdering somebody walking down the street. One person said, well, People don't respect each other's dignity and they take the seats away from the old people on the bus. You know, that's kind of harming the person. And there was one woman who said, very interesting, she said in Spanish, well, some people take the baby out before it's born. She didn't use the word abortion, right? She was a, she, she just described what it is in simple language. And what that told me was that even in a country that had legalized abortion and promoted it, people knew that there was something wrong with taking the baby out of his or her mother's womb. So we have all of these permissive laws on abortion, but I've talked to people who've undergone abortions and I've talked to people who believe we should have it legally. And most people simply cannot convince themselves that it's actually a good thing. It might be a necessary evil, but people who have experienced this pain of having the baby taken out of their womb do not recommend this to other people. It is a painful experience. Women who've had miscarriages, right, what also can be called spontaneous abortions, they experience loss. So I think in a weird way, my trips to Cuba gave me hope because I thought even if a system tells you something, the human person, exactly what Jack Maritain says, right? Deep down inside of us, there's a place that can get out of this totalitarianism because we were given the capacity in our soul to communicate to God. And we are ordained to know who we are. Now we can create barriers to that, but you cannot take it away because it is who we are. So there's always hope to turn back, Sarah. There's always hope to turn back. And if we don't believe that, then we're actually negating a part of our faith, I think. Exactly. Yeah. And I love the vision that you painted there of education, of especially young children in the arts, and the idea that we all have this creativity inside of us, and that actually doing artistic work and also being trained how to perceive art is super formative at a young age, and that's integral to education. One thing I'll say, because we're coming up with Christmas, right? One of my favorite crafts to do that just illustrates all this, right? I like to sit down with little kids, my nieces and nephews, and we take out magazines and we cut out words and images and letters, and then they put them onto Christmas cards and make homemade Christmas cards. This is an amazing craft. They want to take their creativity and make it an offering, make it a gift, right? And that that spirit of creativity and offering of children is beautiful. And I think one of the problems we have in our culture is that our leisure gets organized around, well, sometimes in my household, you know, March Madness, Super Bowl, you know, oh, Thanksgiving and college football, you know. Um, and we've lost the kind of leisure that Joseph Pieper talks about, which is leisure as a contemplative way of being that helps us turn our work into a gift, into an offering, right? Leisure for so many people is a kind of retreat from the world so we can engage and, hey, look, like I said, I love sports. I do love sports. But there's a way in which our entertainment culture is also really offering us a lot of false leisure. What about, and this is a challenge, it's a real challenge. What about the forms of leisure that are creative? and give you the possibility to make an offering to somebody. 
And so with the holidays we have coming up, Thanksgiving, Christmas, the new year, can you make something with your family? Can you make a good meal and bring it to somebody who's alone? Can you make Christmas cards, right? Look, we need high culture. We need people graduating from art school and music school who can make the next generation of operas and beautiful buildings. We need those people. But the people with that kind of a talent, it's not everybody. But all of us have a God-given talent to create Christmas cards and food and other things that are material offerings. Um, and so especially around the holidays and in churches and schools, how can we look at the liturgical calendar, as you just said, and connect the feast of the, of the liturgical calendar? Those two, those liturgical feasts are supposed to be feeding into our daily lives of celebration and joy and giving. Yeah, that's great. One last thing I'd like to touch on is throughout your book, both you and your interviewees often make reference to the philosopher and aesthetician Roger Scruton. And in his book, Beauty, A Very Short Introduction, he brings up this idea of kitsch. And we all kind of have an idea of what this looks like. Kitsch is mass-produced plastic rosaries and religious statues for sale in church bookstores or on the street. Um, The decorations on your grandparents' mantelpiece maybe would be kind of kitsch. Um, And in describing this phenomenon, Scruton says, kitsch deprives feeling of its cost and therefore of its reality. And he contrasts it with an artistic distortion of nihilism, nihilistic art, which you've mentioned already. And the way that I see it, kitsch is an attempt to have the resurrection without the cross. And nihilistic art is a despairing that the cross has no resurrection. So what I want to ask is, if you agree with Scruton that these two extremes present in what he calls the false art of our time exemplify a spiritual misunderstanding of the nature of sacrifice. Um, And can you talk more about how beauty is actually powerfully present in acts and depictions of real sacrifice and pain and how pain is not something to run from or submit to in despair, but actually an opportunity to seek and manifest beauty through embracing its reality? And this goes back to the title of your book, The Wounds of Beauty. So I'd love to just hear more about how kind of between those extremes of denying the cross and denying the resurrection, we can find this this regeneration and new life through experiencing our pain. Yeah, what I think Scruton is getting at in that wonderful book, Beauty, A Short Introduction, is that there's a way in which art that he calls kitsch can directly stimulate the emotions, like get a reaction out of us, but not guide those emotions towards something that's ennobling and uplifting and redemptive. So it's not that beauty always has to depict kind of superficial happiness in order to be good art, right? It's not that beauty has to be moralistic in the sense of only portraying what we think of as happy, right? Um, But true beauty can communicate the wholeness of being human, including, as I mentioned, experiences of death, but with the hope of rebirth, right? So what I think, and, you know, Dana Joya talks about this in my book and others, what good works of beauty do is they do allow us to enter into contemplating things that are tragic or painful, but not separating that pain and that tragedy from the whole, which is the rebirth, right? So I think to follow up on some of Scruton's ideas, I've been reading his books, uh, The Face of God and The Soul of the World, which I discuss in my book in the chapter on Scruton. I discuss these with, with Fran Meyer. And what Scruton is trying to do in those books is to remind us what it means to be a person. And what it means to be a person is indeed to be a subject and to have subjectivity. But it's a subjectivity that is seeking the face of others, right? And the mystery of the faith is that God himself is a person, and that God communicates to us in our subjectivity. And in fact, that's what gives us our subjectivity, Scruton says, is this communication with God. 
And as I mentioned earlier, I think Scruton's view of the human person would align with Acton and with what you and I have talked about, that we need to be able to look at ourselves completely as, as fallen. We are not in the Garden of Eden. And because of that, we suffer pain, we suffer death, we suffer tragedy. But we need to see pain and suffering and tragedy not as alienating us from God, but as calling us to repentance and to calling us to trust in God's mercy. So I think when experiences of pain and suffering are looked at for themselves and not in connection to this mystery of God's communication with us as a person, we can inadvertently create kitsch and a culture of meaninglessness or despair. So what I think Scruton is worried about with kitsch is that if we stop at simply stimulating an emotion, whether that's good or bad, whether that's a good feeling or a bad feeling, right? If we simply stop at that, then we're not going through this process of helping the person develop their awareness of their subjectivity that is meant to communicate with God. And for me, the faith has been so important because I've needed to hold on to that trust in God during really dark times, whether that be my father's death, which was literally his funeral was literally the day before 9-11 or the death of a young student who I mentored with cancer John Artunian, or friends of mine telling me that their husbands committed suicide during COVID, during the COVID shutdowns, the pain of that loss is, is visceral. But inside of us, all of us, there's a desire to believe that even in the most tragic forms of human loss, there's a possibility of redemption. And people desperately need that message right now. The last few years in this country have been full of nihilistic, alienating forms of expression. And what I'm seeing is a groundswell of people seeking these deeper experiences of beauty, not because they're running from pain, but because they want to confront it with hope. And kitsch does not give us Exactly. And this goes back to what we talked about at the beginning, where beauty leads us into an encounter with being and truth. And there's there's an acknowledgement of the actuality of pain, the reality of pain, and that there's a truth of that experience. And there's beauty there if you acknowledge it and embrace it as the cross. Yeah. And this is why to answer your question about the title of the book, The Wounds of Beauty, right? In the place of cross and redemption. I picked the title, The Wounds of Beauty, because it was um, from an essay by Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, right? The contemplation of things, the feelings of beauty. And what he says is that, you know, the wounds of beauty, people often associate the faith with consoling the suffering. And hey, there's a lot of truth in that. But Benedict uses the wounds of beauty in a paradoxical way because the wounds of beauty is also what we can use to describe that feeling of awe and wonder at a beautiful sunset or a beautiful concert, that it, it's an experience that fills us, but it pierces us almost to the point of hurting because it makes us want more of that good thing, right? So the wounds of beauty is both a hope in the midst of suffering but it's also an experience of the true good that incites our desires to keep going on that journey and opens us up, right? So that's, I think, the paradox of the wounds of beauty. And it's similar to the paradox of the cross, right? That the way to rebirth is through death. Death is not the end. It's part of the process that's really an opening up to a new life. Well, I wish we could keep going on this journey, but we're out of time. <laughs> Thank you so much, Margarita, for your time with us today. I learned a lot from this conversation. I'm super grateful to have been able to read your book. I encourage all our listeners to read this book and just to incorporate more beauty into your lives. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. And please do connect with Scala through our newsletter and our online events and our conference in April 2023. We'd love to see any of you there. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.